0: And once again, good morning. Good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 5? For those of you who are new with us, let me just tell you what's going on. We're currently working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here on Sunday mornings at Calvary. We are currently in a section that runs from Chapters 5 through chapter 7, which is called the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Very familiar section. And... Uh, For the last few weeks, we have been studying the Beatitudes, which cover verses 3 through 12 of Matthew 5. The Beatitudes actually form not only the foundation, but the introduction also to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, as we've already said, point out or describe the overall character of a child of God. A child of God, of course, who is in Christ. That's what it means to be a child of God. Which is then followed by how we as children of God are then to live. That's the main body of the sermon, runs from chapter 5, verse 21, to the end of chapter 7. And the order is important, because outward actions always grow out of inward heart attitudes. And conduct always flows out of character. Or in other words, you can't live the life God wants you to live until you first are the person God wants you to be. What person is that? He wants you to be His child. He wants you to be Born of the Spirit, that's how you become a child of God, receive Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior. At that moment, you will become a child of God. The Spirit of God moves in, and only then can you begin to live the life God wants you to live. So it has to start with the heart, and it works its way out into our lives eventually, then. And so, in verses 13 through 16 of Matthew 5, we basically have the climax to the Beatitudes, which is the sum total of all the characteristics we have been studying, which, by the way, also serves as the bridge, verses 13 to 16, serves as the bridge between the Beatitudes and the main body of the sermon. So let's start in verse 13, where Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor or its saltiness, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, when Jesus likened his disciples to salt and light, he was basically telling them, and us of course, that the sum total of our Christian character should have an influence on those around us for good. Now, that's not to say that um, those that we have an influence on will necessarily think it's good. And Why is that? Well, folks, the world is an open sore, and we are salt. The world is in darkness, and here we come shining as lights. Both of those irritate, both of those hurt which really I think explains the world's reaction to us as Jesus described it in verses 11 and 12 when he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, talking about the people of the world, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look, you know you're on the right team by the way the world reacts to you. If you were of the world, Jesus said in John 15, hey, the world would love you because the world has no problem with those that belong to it. But here we are, you know, rubbing the world the wrong way. Again, the world is an open sore. We are salt. Try rubbing salt into an open sore. You ever spend a lot of time in a very, very dark room and all of a sudden somebody shines a big light in your face? Those irritate, don't they? And the world reacts. But the idea behind these declarations is that the world is decaying and the world is in darkness. Folks, that's the biblical worldview. Now, the world's worldview is, hey, we're all getting better and better. You know, the world is becoming better and better. The biblical worldview is the world is not getting better and better. It's getting worse and worse. It's becoming more and more corrupt. Man is not evolving upward in goodness and wisdom. He is devolving downward. Even as the Bible prophesied in the last days, evil men would grow what? Worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, it's interesting to go back in history to the end of the 19th century, just a little over 100 years ago, when philosophers and poets and scientists and really society in general had an incredible optimism for the coming century. Back then, most people in the world believed that they were about to enter into a golden age in the history of humanity, where all wars would be abolished, diseases would be cured, hunger would be eradicated from off the face of the earth, and all suffering would be done away with. They believed that through the education of the masses, drunkenness, and violence, and all other vices would be done away with, would be taken care of, come to an end. That nations would talk with each other and not fight, and peace would characterize the world. In fact, it was such an optimistic period that some writers even went as far as to say, and books were published with this idea as their theme, that the world was fast becoming a paradise. Of course, those books don't sell too well anymore today. But it was all based on the theory of evolution, that mankind was getting better and better. Man was evolving, ascending upwards in character and wisdom. That was the 19th century at the very end, right? Then we came into the 20th century. Well, how do we do? Well, we're standing at the beginning of the 21st century. And looking back, we know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. In fact, more people died in wars. We had two world wars, countless other wars between nations. More people died in the 20th century due to wars than had died in all the previous centuries in all the other wars combined. I mean, if anyone doubted, whether or not we were evolving or devolving, I think World War II and Hitler was a good example of what we're talking about. I mean, Hitler was a big proponent of the theory of evolution. you realize that? Hitler tried to hasten the process of evolution among human beings and bring about a master race by exterminating all those he considered to be genetically inferior and less evolved. The strong killing the weak. See, that's what evolution was, is built on. That principle, the strong killing the weak. And Hitler applied that socially, his own personal version of natural selection. The strong need to kill off the weak so that only the strong survive, and what you wind up with is is a master race. Listen, folks, information in the brain has little to do with the evil in men's hearts. And that really is where evil resides, in the heart. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 15, he said, Out of the heart come evil desires and thoughts and murders and blasphemies the heart is where all of man's problems reside because that's where the evil in men's hearts resides. And every once in a while, that evil is let out in a way that we are absolutely shocked and horrified that mankind could be so wicked and so evil. You say, well, you know, that that was them. That's not me. Well, you know what? I'm not saying anyone in this room would necessarily do anything that was done back then. Because I've studied World War II, and I just got done reading a biography of that period of time, A pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a biography on his life. And um, it's amazing that these uh, SS soldiers and things, Nazis and things, what they did to other human beings at work, they came home and were good family men, loving fathers, uh, good neighbors. People described them as being uh, genteel and polite and so on. But they had so rationalized what they were doing was good, getting rid of the inferior so that mankind could have a super race that it allowed them to do the most horrific things to other human beings. Under the right circumstances, we are capable of doing almost anything. And so the Bible says that the natural man is dead in trespasses and sins. And when something is dead, it decays, right? Hence the need for salt. We'll explain that in a moment. The Bible says the world is enveloped in moral and spiritual darkness. Enter the need for light. And so let's look at salt and light, and see how they describe us as Christians. First of all, in verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, you, and the Greek is plural, all of you who are my disciples, and again the implication is, all of you and you alone, as my disciples, are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but in the ancient world, salt was a very valuable commodity. In fact, the Greeks went as far as to say it was divine, which is not surprising at all because there wasn't much the Greeks didn't think was divine. They had deified pretty much everything, all right? So it was no big deal The Greeks thought salt was divine. But even Rome, the Romans said nothing was more important than sun and salt. Salt was so valuable that Rome actually painted soldiers with salt. And if a guy was a lousy soldier, people would say about him, he's not worth his salt. That's where that expression came from. Now, back in Jesus' day, salt had three main purposes or influences. Now, what I'm about to share with you folks is not anything, you know, you haven't heard before, okay? As one author put it as I was studying this week, you know, so much has been said about salt and light from Scripture that it's hard to to come at it from any new perspective, so, like Peter this morning, I'm not going to tell you probably what you don't know. I'm just going to put you in remembrance of things you already have learned. All right, important things though. But back in Jesus, they salted three main purposes or influence. Each of these applies spiritually to us as Christians because they are really designed by Jesus to teach us the influence we're to have on the world around us as we come in contact with it. First of all, salt created thirst. Salt. Created thirst. As Christians, we are to make the people of this world thirsty for the living water of Christ. Turn to John chapter 4. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman who was an outcast, really, who had come to draw water by the well of Sychar. Jesus knew she was going to be there, so he sat there waiting for her, because before the foundation of the earth, The father had penciled this meeting into Jesus' schedule that a certain woman who was thirsty in her soul would come to this well at a certain time and there Jesus would meet her and confront her with her real need. And so Jesus begins to talk with her and says to her, will you give me a drink? And she's a little shocked by that because she said, you know, why is it that you as a Jew are asking me for a drink of water? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus said, well, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink and he would give you living water. And she said, well, sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. How then are you going to give me that living water? And Jesus said in verse 13, he said, whoever drinks of this water pouring to the water of the well, there literal water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, Jesus often did this. He used the physical And he related it to the spiritual. He said, look, if you drink the water of this well, you go ahead and drink literal water, you're going to thirst again, right? Obviously. But if you drink the water that I give, which is not literal, what is the water that Jesus gives? What's the living water of Christ? It's him, right? If you drink of me as the living water, I'm going to satisfy the thirst in your soul so that you'll never thirst again inwardly. You see, because Jesus knew this was a woman who was thirsty inside, in her soul. How do we know that? Well, she had been married and divorced five times. And the man she was currently living with was not even her husband. Jesus confronted her on this. She was thirsty in her soul. She didn't know what was going to satisfy that thirst. She thought maybe a relationship with a man would satisfy that thirst. Well, she was part right. It was going to be a relationship with a certain man who was not just a man, he was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus talks to her about her true need. He says, I know you're thirsty inside. And you're trying to fill that physical, that spiritual thirst with all kinds of physical things. You need me. If you drink of me, I will come into your heart. You'll never thirst again inwardly. Turn to John chapter 7. And starting in verse 37, we read, On the last day, the great day of the feast. This would be the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in the fall. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, it's the same idea that he confronted the woman by the well in John 4 with. Same idea. Come to me and drink, if you're thirsty, inside. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's how you drink of Jesus. You believe on him. You receive him into your heart as your Lord and Savior. And when he comes in, he takes not only away your thirst, but you become a channel through which that living water will flow to those around you to meet their thirst. You become a channel through which God might touch other people with his truth. See, only Jesus can satisfy the great thirst in the human heart for God. What did the psalmist say? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. As believers, we must cultivate that thirst. And you cultivate that thirst by spending time with the Lord. Because the more time you spend with Him, the more you desire to drink from Him, from His Word, from uh, Him personally in prayer and so on. But the idea is, as we come into the presence of the Lord each day, and we drink of His Word, and we fellowship with Him, We fill ourselves up with that living water, you might say. And then we go out into a thirsty world, and we're full of joy and love and peace and purpose. And we go out there, we're just living our lives for the Lord, right? We're high in the Lord. And people see us, and they see how we live, and it makes them thirsty for what we have. We've seen it a lot, haven't we? People have been saved because they've watched your life, and they have seen a difference in you, something that they don't have. They have seen in you, and they want what you have. You've made them thirsty for the living water of Christ. So first of all, salt created thirst. Secondly, salt was used to season, to season. It's our responsibility, and we do it by just simply being the Christians God wants us to be. It's our responsibility to add flavor to life. You see, apart from Jesus, life can be pretty routine, bland, and boring most of the time. Let's face it. I mean, you know, most people endure long periods of boredom and blandness in life to come to a vacation or a special event or a holiday or something, right? But for the most part, the average person lives their life in a state of boredom and it's, it's a bland existence. They're not even sure why they get up. And they know they have to go to work to eat and, and, and have money to pay the mortgage. But really, life seems like just a constant... Never-ending routine that just, it's like there's no purpose almost to it. And I think that's one of the big reasons for all the alcoholism and drug abuse, all the pleasure mania in our culture today. People are trying desperately to either numb themselves to the boredom and, the, and just the emptiness, or try to spice things up in life because without Jesus, life is insipid and unsatisfying. And the things of this world, folks, will never, ever add flavor and satisfaction to life. I don't care how much people spend on gadgets and entertainment and recreation. I mean, we Americans, I'll tell you what, we are masters of trying to fill the void. Only God can fill with the things of this world. Listen to what God said in Isaiah 55. You don't have to turn there, but verses 2 and 3. Listen to what God said. Speaking to Israel back then, who was just very much like America today. Okay, People don't change, really. He said, why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? He said, listen carefully to me. You think when God says, listen carefully to me, you think you ought to listen? (laughs) And eat what is good. He's not talking about literal food now. And let your soul delight itself in abundance, incline your ear, and come to me. God says, you know, what are you running around spending all your money for stuff that isn't essentials? Because you're looking to those things to satisfy the emptiness in your soul. He said, look, you need bread, you need water, you need those essentials for your physical man. But your soul, your inner man, needs essentials too. And only I can feed the inner man. Only I can feed that inward hunger and thirst in your soul, God is saying. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Talking about salt adding flavor. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. But folks, unbelievers will never desire to taste if the people of God aren't living in such a way as that it makes people hungry for what we have. So salt really also adds flavor. And number three, salt retarded decay. You know, back in Jesus' day, of course, there was no refrigeration, which meant that meat spoiled and decayed quickly. So, what they would do is they would take salt and they would really rub the surface of the meat. I mean, with a large quantity of salt, which would kill surface bacteria and retard decay. Give them a little longer before the meat would spoil. And you know what? There's a lot of bacteria, if I can put it that way, in our culture today. There's a lot of uh, corrupting influences in our society that is causing the decay of morals and decency. Did you catch the uh, video? It's been everywhere, YouTube, it's been on the news of the two young gals, 17 and 14, who viciously beat up another young gal in a McDonald's in Maryland. Come to find out later that the young gal they beat up was actually a guy who was uh, a transvestite, dressed up as a woman. And I don't know what happened, but there was some dispute over using the washroom, and it set these two young girls off, and they began to viciously beat this person. And the manager of the McDonald's, you know, I I saw the whole thing. Somebody was videoing the whole thing. He walks over, and he's kind of trying to break it up. He didn't seem like he was all that um, zealous about it. But, you know, every time he broke it up, the girls would come back and still pound and kick. And by this time, this person's on the ground, and the girls are stomping on the person's head. Finally, uh, the person went into a full-blown seizure. And he's on the ground shaking, you know. and, and, And somebody's videoing the whole thing. You think you put the camera down and try to help the person. People, Nobody comes over. People are eating their food. It's like, what has happened to us as a society? We are not evolving into it, it, it becoming better and better. We're becoming worse and worse. I mean, I'm not saying all of us, but in general, right? The callousness, the disregard for human life. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling we see a lot of corrupting influences out there that are working on people lawlessness abounds Uh, as it wasn't in the the period of the judges which was a very black period in Israel's history which it it says uh, five or six times in the book of Judges because there was no king in Israel therefore everybody did what was right in their own eyes we're seeing that again today there is no king in America what do you mean Jesus Christ is not on the throne we call ourselves a Christian nation a nation that's under God, it's just words now. It doesn't mean anything anymore because Jesus Christ is not on the throne of our nation. He's not on the throne of, of most of the people's hearts in America. We're not looking to the word of God to guide us. We're doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. Now we can see the effects everywhere. Again, through random acts of violence, divorce, the disintegration of the family, I mean, You can't turn on the TV without being reminded how our society is decaying all around us. You know, it was said of the Roman Empire that they weren't conquered from without, they rotted from within. That's exactly what's happening to America. We are rotting from within because when a nation turns its back on God, it allows all the evil, all the decay to start spreading throughout our culture. But let me just say this to you guys. If we as the church are the salt of the earth and salt retards decay and we see decay rampant in our society, what does it say about the job the salt's doing? We're not doing our jobs, are we? Jesus went on to say, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor or saltiness, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, in our day, salt is uh, purified, and so it never loses its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, salt was not purified. It had a lot of impurities in it. And salt would sometimes lose its saltiness, so that it was no longer good to season stuff with or even to kill surface bacteria, but it was still strong enough to kill weeds and vegetation, so they would take it and they would throw it out into the dirt pathways they walked on, where people would trample it into the soil, which was already pretty hard, But it would keep vegetation, weeds and stuff from growing up on their pathway so they could walk at least without being hindered. And Jesus is saying, look, for those of us who profess to be Christians, if we aren't standing up and speaking out against evil, if by our lives we are not really confronting the culture as salt by the way we're living. Well, as Jesus said of literal salt likening it to us as spiritual salt, if Christians no longer retain their saltiness, then what is our Christianity good for? It just becomes irrelevant and meaningless. And people trample over. Are people trampling on Christianity today? You know why they're trampling on Christianity? Because we're a joke. Not everybody, of course, but the Christian church is a joke. It's irrelevant. It's meaningless. You know, people go to church, and they sing the songs, and they hear the sermon, and they leave, and it doesn't impact their lives at all. And so the world looks at us and goes, you guys are a joke. And they trample. See, if we were living in the power of the Spirit, and we were seeing God transforming our lives, and as we went out into the world, we would see God transforming others' lives through our ministries, I guarantee you the world would not be thinking we're a joke. The world would be coming to us and saying, and say, we're thirsty for what you got. But it's not that way. We've lost our saltiness. And so many Christians, their Christianity is confined within the four walls of their churches where it remains hidden and ineffective in impacting the world around them for Christ. Now, that really brings us to the second thing Jesus said we are as his disciples in this world. He said in verse 14, he said, You are the light of the world. He also went on to say, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And once again, the first thing that is implied is that the world is in a state of darkness and we alone are its only light source as the people of God. You know, one author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, it's interesting how the world is always talking about enlightenment ever since the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries, which ended the Dark Ages. It was regarded as an age of enlightenment where mankind began to take a new interest in knowledge and learning, regarded by many as the great turning point in the history of civilization as mankind began to look to knowledge, education, and science for the answers to man's problems, end quote. And sadly, man is still looking to things like science and education to solve all of our problems as human beings. However, as we stand here this morning, guys, we have just entered 11 years ago, but really, when you talk about a new millennium, we have just basically entered into a new millennium, haven't we? And as we stand here this morning, at the beginning of a new millennium, we stand here as mankind having more knowledge in medicine, science, and technology than was known in all the previous centuries in the history of mankind put together. And yet, has it saved us? Has it solved all of our problems? No, I'll submit to you, it is added to them. The sad reality is that the more our knowledge has increased, instead of solving our problems, it has allowed man to invent more and more sophisticated weapons, so man has become more efficient in killing his fellow man. Weapons that... Now even threaten our very existence as human beings. And I know there's always people who will defend modern science and technology and and say, well, what about all the wonderful things that science and technology has done for the human race? And of course, there have been many wonderful things that science and technology have done for us. But it's also done a lot of bad for mankind too. It's given us the atomic bomb, the neutron bomb, it's given us all kinds of other weapons. In fact, I was telling First Service that, you know, we talk about What um, science has done in helping humanity? Well, medical science, I don't know how many years ago, actually succeeded in eradicating one disease from the face of the earth, smallpox. Science eradicated, medical science eradicated smallpox, which had been a terrific killer of human beings up to that point. They eradicated it from the face of the earth. So what did man do? He turned around and began to cultivate it in laboratories to weaponize it, to use as a biological weapon against our fellow men. So, yeah, science and technology have done some wonderful things for the human race, but it's also given us some very evil things. And, folks, if the negative winds up destroying mankind, the good won't mean too much, right? So God's Word rightly says that mankind is in darkness, and the greatest enlightenment that man needs isn't scientific... It is spiritual. He needs spiritual light that comes not from the New Age gurus, but from God Almighty. And we all know that in the Bible, spiritual light is truth. It's the truth that God has revealed to man. Theologians call that special revelation. There is general revelation, which is the creation. God has revealed himself to all mankind through the creation. But then God has revealed himself more specifically through special revelation, which is what you have in your laps this morning. It is the word of God. God's word is truth. God's word is light. Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, the night before his crucifixion, as he prayed to his father, he said, Father, sanctify them, his disciples. Sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. But so God's word is truth, but God's word is also light. Psalm 119, verse 105. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the Garden of Eden, when man sinned against God, Adam plunged the world into spiritual darkness. As one author said, at that point, man poked his own spiritual eyes out and went around groping to find his way back to God. Groping in the darkness. But that's what God's truth was intended by God to be, light to guide man's way back to God. You see, in the Old Testament period, God revealed His word. Now remember, we're talking about revealed truth now, right? In the Old Testament period, God revealed His word to prophets in bits and pieces, right, who wrote these things down. And it gave us, it gave the Jews, the people living in the Old Testament period, it gave them an idea of who God was somewhat, they didn't really know a lot about the Lord, but it did reveal bits and pieces of His character, what He was like, what He expected from mankind, so on and so forth. It was an incomplete revelation, though, of God to mankind. And it remained incomplete until the full revelation was given to mankind through the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to the earth. You don't have to turn to these. Let me read them to you. In Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we read, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish patriarchs, by the prophets, right? So God in the Old Testament times spoke to the Jewish people through the prophets. Again, giving them little bits and pieces of information, little glimpses of God. But it was incomplete, right? So he spoke in various ways in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son Jesus Christ was the full disclosure of the revelation of God to mankind, he was light. Remember what how John opens up his gospel in chapter 1 starting in verse 6? John said, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John the Apostle isn't talking about himself there, he's talking about John the Baptist, right? He said, This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness of the light, capital L, Jesus Christ that all through him might believe. John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus Christ was the true light. There has always been false lights, folks, always. There still is today. There's always false belief systems and religions and, and spiritual deals where people claim to have light, that you might be enlightened. The Bible says there is only one source of light that is true, and it's Jesus Christ, because all truth, all spiritual truth comes from God. He is the light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the only source of true spiritual light is God himself. Jesus, of course, is God incarnate. He came into a dark world, a world that Adam had plunged into sin. He came into this world to light our way back to God. He said in John 8, verse 12, He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So spiritual light is the revelation of God's truth, isn't it? Found in his word and declared by his son. Now, stay with me, because now I'm going to bring this back to how we become light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, all right? Here's how it happens. Since God is the source of all spiritual light, the only way that we can be spiritual lights is to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, inviting Him to come into our hearts to take up residence, to sit on the throne, and to govern our lives as King, right? Well, when Jesus comes into a heart, when you, when you opened your heart to Christ, and when I opened my heart to Christ, the light of the world moved inside. And that allowed us now to become lights in this world. We don't have any light within us. The only light truth that we have in us is what Jesus put there when he came to live inside of us. And now it's our responsibility to share the truth of God with others through our words, but especially through our lives as Jesus shines through us. He went on to say, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16 Let your light so shine before men. Well, why wouldn't the light so shine? If Jesus is in my heart, right, and he's the light of the world, why wouldn't his light shine through me, right? Well, let me ask you this. You ever seen a candle inside a window, and the window was very, very dirty? Do you see much of the light of the candle? No. You clean the window, and then that light comes through nice and clear. When Jesus comes to live in our lives, in our hearts, that's something he does. We invite him in through faith, but he comes and lives. He takes up residence. He's the light. It's our responsibility to keep our our lives clean, right? So that the light is not hindered from shining. When we sin, what are we supposed to do? What did John say? If we sin and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins into what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, Jesus gets the old squeegee out and squeegees off the window, man. Cleans it up, squeegees it off, and boom, here we are. The light is shining again. But it's not me, it's Jesus inside of me, right? But listen to what Jesus went on to say as we bring this to a close. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put her under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16 let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, I love the Lord because he used such simple illustrations, didn't he? Very simple. First of all, the purpose of a light source is to give light to the surrounding area, isn't it? I mean, there's no purpose or point in lighting a candle or a lantern only to hide it under a basket, as Jesus said. You don't do that. You put it up somewhere high on a table or something where it can give light to everyone in that area. And again, relating it to us, Jesus is saying the purpose of the Christian life is that we are to be lights to those who are in spiritual and moral darkness in the world around us. Jesus did not say to his disciples, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. As we come together as the lights of the world, but we only light shine in the church. And we're not ashamed to be Christians here, are we? We're not ashamed to let our light shine here in this place, right? Because we're all Christians. We're all like-minded, right? We don't, we're not going to be judged. We're not going to be ridiculed. We're not going to be put down and mocked and made fun out of. We come here and we let our guard down because we're with family. And we come in and we got our Bibles and we sing songs to the Lord. And we love to hear the word. And we pray with one another. And this is a great place for our light to shine, Right? But then we go out into the world and we turn the light off almost or we cover it. We hide out because out there we will get ridiculed and mocked and persecuted. And I don't want to be mocked and ridiculed. It's not fun. I'm going to tone the light down. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to become a closet Christian. You know, Everybody's coming out of the closets but Christians today. I don't understand it. But if this is the only place, guys, where we let our light shine, look around you. Imagine this room is nothing but a big basket, okay? And we all come together, and here's the only place where our light shines. This room is tantamount to a giant basket hiding the light because in here it's great, out there is where they need it. We have to take it out to the world around us. You say, okay, but how do we let our light shine? And we're done. How do we let our light shine in the darkness of this world? Well, Jesus alluded to it right here in verse 16. He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now listen carefully to me. We don't do our good works that we might be saved. Because works don't save us. Faith in Christ saves us. But once we're saved, the good works are a fruit of our relationship with Jesus, right? What are these good works? Well, starting in verse 21 of chapter 5 and running to the end of chapter 7, Jesus is going to teach us what these good works are all about. And most of it is just the way you relate to God. And as you properly relate to God, loving Him first, you're going to just, it's going to spill over on other people, the kindness, the generosity, just the things that are part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. That's how your light shines. Just be the person God has made you to be. You're saved. Now go out there and live like somebody who knows Jesus. And he gives us all kinds of different things that he talks about that really make up our works, and we'll study these as we move along here and keep that in mind. The whole body of the sermon really answers the question, How can I let my light shine? How can I be salt? How can I let my light shine in this dark world? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. But it all comes, first of all, from being born again. Secondly, from loving the Lord so much that you have a hunger and you have a thirst for Him every day. And as you feed on Him and drink the living water that He gives, you want to go out there and just be who God made you. Believe me, people are going to see there's a difference. Being a light, folks, again, is all attached to your lifestyle. I'll give you one more scripture, we'll close. Philippians 2, starting at verse 14. Listen to what Paul said. He said to Christians now, do everything without complaining and arguing. Man, if we could just nail down that, the church would be a wonderful place. We'd revolutionize the church across this country. If Christians could just nail that down in their homes and in their churches, wow. Talk about letting the light shine, man. It'd be so bright, people wouldn't, they wouldn't even be able to look at us. All right? Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean. I love that. Your light can't shine if your life is dirty with sin. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Does that pretty much sum up the world we live in? It sure does. Paul went on to say, hold firmly to the word of life because that's... How we learn how to be light and salt, right? The word of God. And then Paul said, on the day that Christ returns, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. In other words, by you living the way I'm talking about, Paul was saying, you prove to the world you are really God's children. And you prove to me that I haven't labored in vain. In other words, my ministry really affected you. You're saved now. And that's what it's all about. Living our lives in such a way is that the world sees that we're different. I'm afraid to talk to people about Jesus. I, I just, I'm not very brave. Jesus said, "Let your light so shine. Let your life speak. Let your life speak louder than anything else. And if you just live the way God wants you to live openly, unashamedly in this world, you won't have to say much. People will come to you and ask you, "What do you have? Because man, I want what you got. My life's a mess. My marriage is crumbling. My kids are are wayward. I have a problem with alcohol. I have a problem with drugs. I see you. You're always happy. When any problem comes your way, you're not all worked up and worried. You have peace. What is with you? Well, let me tell you how Jesus has transformed my life. That light will shine. It's because of the way we live in this world. So starting next time, guys, we will begin to look at the main body of this sermon where Jesus will first of all talk about inward attitudes and how important they are in the eyes of God. And he'll move from there and begin to teach us how to be lights in this world. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is light. Your word is truth. And every page is Jesus, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for saving us. We thank you, Lord, that you have restored our sight, that we see more clearly now than we ever did before we were saved because we now see this world and this life through a biblical worldview, through a heavenly perspective, and we know this world is rapidly passing away, and we are lights and salt. We need to do everything we can by the way we live to see other people brought to you before the whole thing comes crashing down, Lord. So we want to live that life, Lord, that honors and pleases you. We want to live a life that helps others to know you. Give us grace, Lord. We thank you. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.